Hello and welcome to the Tech Diplomacy podcast brought to you from San Francisco by the Norwegian Consulate General and Open Austria. I'm Greta Behenriksen, Consul General of Norway. Technology has always played a role in human life. Yet over the past decade, we have seen this role explode to a degree we can barely comprehend. As tech companies grow in scale, reach and wealth, governments have begun focusing efforts on bringing these new players into the diplomatic discussion. In this podcast, we invite diplomats, researchers, civil society and tech companies to talk about anything and everything at the intersection between new and emerging technologies, regulations and its implications. Join us as we explore tech diplomacy. Hello, and welcome to the Tech Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Emma Blotman, and I am the Technology Advisor at the Norwegian Consulate in San Francisco. In today's episode, we have an expert on cyber diplomacy, Anna Maria Osla, with us. She's currently a digital governance fellow at Stanford University, conducting research on the role of the uh, of private sector in cyber diplomacy. She also serves as a senior researcher at Tallinn University of Technology and a senior policy officer at GuardTime. Previously, she worked as a legal researcher at the NATO Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, undertaking projects on national cybersecurity strategies, international organizations, international criminal cooperation and norms. In addition uh, to a PhD in law from the University of Tartu, she holds a Master of Laws degree in IT law from Stockholm University. Welcome, Maria. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Also with me today, I have my colleague and expert on cybersecurity, Helge Marstrander. Thank you for joining today's session. Thank you, Emma. And uh, thank you, Maria, for joining us. Emma and myself, we had a privilege of uh, joining an event where you spoke a couple of weeks ago, and that was really great. So thank you for joining us. So I would like to kick things off with a general question, um, Maria. So how do you define cyber diplomacy? Yeah, thank you, Emma, so much for the question. I I do believe that it's always good to start with the terminology and the basic concepts and to find a common understanding on these conce- concepts before we can go into more into detail. And this is exactly actually what is happening currently with the concept of cyber diplomacy because we do not have a... a um, a consensus definition of cyber diplomacy. So we see that different actors are actively using the term and trying to make sense to the term. So we see different concepts, different scopes, and and different uh, understandings when it comes to the term. But but for the purposes of my research, I am using the concept to illustrate the use of diplomatic tools and initiatives to achieve a state's national. Uh, interest in cyberspace and and here I focus more on the connection with national security or in the context of international peace and security. An example can be brought um, of the negotiations ongoing in the United Nations on the norms of state behavior for cyberspace. And it is also interesting to see that it's not only the states who find this concept useful, but we also see lots of discussion happening among non-state actors or you know, uh, with different stakeholders and also in academia. So, for example, on behalf of Taltech, I am part of two academic projects, SciDiplo and CASPA, which are both focusing on 
understanding or substantiating the concept of cyber diplomacy and also working on education and training related to cyber diplomacy. Wow, that's that's very interesting. Um, uh, here at the consulate, we work with uh, tech diplomacy, and and that's a process to give the field a proper definition. Um, and in addition, we, we see that a lot of other uh, career consulates in the Bay Area, they focus on science diplomacy. And, uh, and I think a lot of these fields, they blend into one another. And in some situations, perhaps they even uh, can be looked at as a whole. Um, but from, from your perspective, what are some examples of today's geopolitical challenges, specifically within cyber diplomacy? Yeah, I, I I fully agree what you what you said in the beginning that we have different concepts. They are clearly interlinked, and for me as a researcher, it is really fascinating uh, to see the connections between the different terms. So mostly, what I see the MFAs using are uh, cyber diplomacy and tech diplomacy. Cyber diplomacy focusing more than on the security-related issues and tech diplomacy perhaps more on innovation or supporting technology markets, uh, uh, sometimes also related to, to certain aspects of regulation. So it's interesting to see that different states are currently trying out different approaches uh, to uh, to these issues. So we have some countries that have cyber ambassadors, some countries that have tech ambassadors. Well, uh, we know very well in Silicon Valley, there is a lot of effort on, on uh, tech ambassadors and the cooperation with the private sector. Some countries have both. So for me, from, um, from my perspective, it is really fascinating to see how these structures are formed and how the states are, are kind of... Um, experimenting with different uh, structures and different uh, different positions and for me like the main thing here is that this is all a proof that uh, states have accepted and have clearly accepted that issues related to cybersecurity and technology are part of the foreign policy. So, so this is a clear trend that, that we can see happening. As to uh, what you asked about um, the challenges specifically within cyber diplomacy, then of course there are there are many issues being discussed, and um, I would um, by dis to to describe what is going on, I would focus on the level of United Nations and the negotiations happening there, and we see uh, already many things that have been uh, discussed or have been agreed upon. Uh, there was the the um, the discussions held under the United Nations Group of Governmental Experts process that resulted in a number of uh, reports and some of these reports have made really important uh, contributions to these these discussions. For example, in 2013, it was discussed uh, agreed that international uh, law applies in cyberspace like it does in in physical space. Mm. Uh, there were many norms agreed upon uh, put forward and now the discussion has been opened up to all the uh, member uh, states of the United Nations who, who want to be involved under the format of the Open and the Working Group. And, and there, uh, the discussions are ongoing. Yeah, there are sessions happening as we speak, um, discussions uh, being held in different formats, but, but the kind of main challenges are currently, I would say, focusing on, on substantiating the norms that have been agreed upon, trying to understand what do they actually mean, talking about accountability, uh, enforcement of these norms, discussions focusing on international law, the interpretation of international law, how far can the Open Any Working Group as a format even go in these discussions, 
and also issues, of course, related to confidence building and capacity building, because all these four that I mentioned, international law, capacity building, confidence building and norms, are so to, are called as the four pillars of these discussions. Mm. And um, all of these need to be taken into account. Yeah, so there, there seems to be several arenas where cyber diplomacy is, is taking place. Um, do, you, do you think these are, are complementary or, or, and do they build on each other or what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I agree that they are complementary and I think, um, I think different um, arenas or different levels, they all have their different um, kind of functions or things that they can do better. Um, the international arena is great uh, for opening up the discussion for different states, giving different countries um, the opportunity to express their ideas, to be involved, uh, to have this feeling that they are being heard. Whereas regional levels may sometimes uh, be very useful in, in filling the gaps uh, that mm. uh, have remained from international discussions. From the regional levels, we can bring examples of the EU and ASEAN, uh, which are great platforms for focusing you know, on more regional challenges, on the more geopolitical issues um, in those areas. And they, in my opinion, and, I'm, and I have written on this, um, I think they can be seen sometimes as being even more successful than than the global arenas because they have uh, a more limited um, a number of participants in the sense that they can be more concrete, more focused, addressing specific concerns, and they can be great vehicles for, for issues related to uh, training, confidence building, also uh, interpretation of different norms and international law. So, Maria... Uh, in times of cyber diplomacy, uh, what are the, some of the new develops, uh, developments in the United Nations and possibly specifically in the open-ended working group? How is the work structured there? Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Helga, for the question. Um, well, the open-ended working group, as mentioned, is, is um, a development from the UNGG in the sense that the UNGG was... Um, a process with a specific number of states, whereas now the Open Any Work Group uh, is open for, for all UN member states who have the desire to participate. In addition, it also uh, holds consulted, uh, consulting meetings with other interested parties, such as businesses, non-governmental organizations and, and academia. Um, the, the work is organized as such that uh, the mandate is uh, for uh, until 2025 and it is, uh, the, there are different meetings under this uh, open-ended working group framework. There are substantive sessions. Uh, for example, there was one session held in the end of March until the 1st of April this year uh, in person in New, in New York and the third session uh, will be held in July. The format of the discussion focuses on the four pillars that I just mentioned. And in addition, there is special focus on existing and potential threats uh, in the sphere of international security. So, so trying to cover um, roughly the same, there's the same content or scope that we could see in the UNGGE reports um, that have been already published. Um, of course, there is also the issue on, on what will happen next, what will happen after 2025, after the mandate of the Open-Ended Working Group or even before. So there are also discussions on on the ways to um, 
uh, to develop new frameworks under the UN to accommodate all the different discussions, all the different stakeholders who want to be involved. Uh, this concept is known as the program of action that has been proposed by a number of states. Um, the discussions on, on how to uh, take this forward and what are the uh, next steps are, are ongoing currently as we speak. So, so there seems to be a lot of different interests going into the open-ending working group with private sectors and state actors and uh, academia and others. And on, historically, the, the, the free and open internet was founded on norms and standards based out of academia and, and government side. And in tech and in an IT in general, standardization has always been important. So in your view, what can you say about norms and standardization in this field today and its importance going forward in the future? Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Helga. I think this is a really, uh, really good question and a very uh, much of a focal point of, of these ongoing discussions. So. So there have been uh, discussions on how to uh, how to regulate cyberspace uh, for years, for decades. Uh, we we know of important uh, writings by, for example, Lawrence Lessig proposing that code is law, that we should regulate technology by by different options, and he proposes uh, these different uh, perspectives in his uh, famous book. I would say that um, currently. Uh, there seems to be a great challenge in agreeing on legally binding norms when it comes to uh, state behavior in cyberspace. So different countries have different perspectives, different views, and and uh, reaching an agreement on a legally binding treaty, for example, um, regarding state behavior in cyberspace appears to be very challenging and perhaps is even not necessary given that we do have existing international law. Uh, we do have different concepts that uh, can be used. It's it's a rather the question, uh, uh, it can be asked whether it's only behind political will in actually using these concepts. Uh, but many states are being more active in uh, in expressing their views on how to interpret international law. And the uh, UN has been a great vehicle in supporting um, that. And, and the, anyone who is interested, the different viewpoints of different countries on the interpretation of international law are available on the UN uh, website. So... So because, and this is my, my view on things, because it is uh, rather challenging to agree on, on more legally binding issues, then, then the option of norms uh, seems to be more suitable for taking these discussions further. Because by norms, uh, this is how it is, uh, the, the term is seen on the UN level, um, the countries uh, uh, see politically binding norms or legally non-binding agreements on what should be state behavior in cyberspace. And we talk here, uh, for example, issues of uh, agreeing not to damage critical infrastructure or agreeing to um, to have um, a certain control over ICT-related activities on your own territory when it comes to these activities possibly harming uh, other states. So... So there are a lot of issues uh, ongoing and being discussed, being discussed, and it seems from the current negotiations that norms may be better suited to take these discussions forward uh, because they are more, so to say, um, soft. They're not that um, uh, what what the lawyers would call hard law. But you also asked about uh, standardization, and standardization, I think. Um, 
is very, very important when it comes to discussing the possible regulation or further regulation or future regulation of emerging technologies. Because here again, uh, we can you know, talk hours about the challenges related to coming up with legal regulations of technologies while technology is developing so fast. So you have you know, the cartoons of technology running really fast and, and lawmakers uh, being very slow, uh, slowly behind. So one of the options um, to, to tackle these concerns is actually by putting more effort on standardization and, and by analyzing uh, current, uh, uh, current uh, kind of developments, I would say that this is exactly what is happening. States are putting more and more effort to standardization. Standardization has, has ceased to be a merely technical discussion. Uh, standardization uh, has become more and more strategic. We see different um, organizations such as the EU clearly stating that that they need to step uh, step up their game in standardization. We see more countries active on, on these platforms. Um, from, from guard time, from my experience there, we have been more involved in um, standardization related to blockchain technologies. And we can really see that uh, states and international organizations such as the EU are becoming more active in this regard. Of course, there are many challenges also related to standardization. Uh, and still the, the wider question of, of do you, how much do you want to regulate technology? Uh, where is the balance between uh, then innovation and, and then, then regulating uh, these new emerging uh, companies and technologies? So, so this is always up, up for discussion. But, uh, but yes, I do see that, that more and more effort is being put on, on standardization um, initiatives. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Um, to follow up on, uh, we mentioned um, multi-stakeholderism. Uh, you define three levels of them. What are those and why are they so important to differentiate them? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the question. I think uh, multi-stakeholderism is, um, is, is something that, again, has been talked about for years, but it is only now that we do realize how relevant it is in the context of... Um, or, for example, cybersecurity and uh, norms of behavior for cyberspace. Actually, multi-stakeholderism and um, and cyber diplomacy and the role of the private sector. These are my this is my current research focus here in Stanford, and it is really interesting for me to see um, how. Uh, we can see the kind of pattern of involving more stakeholders clearly in, in other domains, such as international uh, trade. However, in the context of uh, agreeing or enforcing or discussing norms of state behavior, the uptake is a bit or has been a bit slower. Yet we cannot really kind of, nobody's doubting in the role of the private sector and, and other stakeholders uh, in this discussion. So we just have to find the right uh, and meaningful and effective modalities for involving uh, different stakeholders e in these discussions. Um, you mentioned the three, uh, three layers. Um, I think it's useful to use these layers to think about multi-stakeholderism. The international layer that we mentioned, uh, the discussions ongoing in the UN, the regional level that we mentioned, um, things happening in the EU and also in different um, regional forums such as ASEAN. And also on the domestic level, we can clearly see that the issue of cybersecurity 
is not something that can only be solved by, let's say, uh, security companies or only solved by ministries. So um, my experience and my research uh, shows that that this multi-stakeholderism, or we can use other terms for it, we can use it, the, the term often used on the domestic level is, is comprehensive approach or the holistic approach, that you need to have the input from different actors in order to be able uh, to effectively address these concerns. A good example of this is how national cybersecurity strategies are being written. They are not being written only by, by ministry officials, you know, sitting together and, and trying to come up with great ideas. No, it is always important to involve uh, different actors involved in different uh, segments of cybersecurity. And, and this is why Estonia, for example, when uh, the first cybersecurity strategy was published in 2008, uh, from there on uh, has taken a comprehensive approach. A comprehensive then meaning not only the different stakeholders, but also focusing on the different um, layers of cybersecurity, uh, domestic layer, uh, technical issues, and also the international layer. Because as our discussion has kind of proved already, then cybersecurity uh, is, is an issue not only belonging to domestic agendas, but also very strongly making their way up also to international discussions. Mm. Yeah. And, and you said something about the private sector's uh, interest in this discussion. Could you uh, expand on that? Yeah, that's um, this is a really interesting topic. So thanks, Emma, for this comment. And, and I'm sure that um, uh, you have, both of you have great experience in, in uh, the cooperation with the private sector. And, um, and in that sense, I don't have to prove uh, why private sector is a relevant actor in this regard. I mean, mm. we can you know, only ask like, who is running the infrastructure, who is running the services, who, uh, who holds the data and who holds the information. So, so clearly, uh, private sector is an important player. I think that now in the UN level, uh, the discussions have been really focusing on how to involve uh, so not only the private sector, but also other non-state actors into these discussions. So we can clearly see that there is great appetite uh, from certain private sector actors in in being actively engaged in these discussions. So as I mentioned, um, a lot of effort uh, has, has uh, gone into agreeing on the uh, modalities on how to involve the private sector. Uh, a certain agreement has been uh, reached in the context of the Open Energy Working Group, but um, time will tell if this is actually the most effective and, and the most uh, meaningful way forward. But we do see um, a wide range of, of different actors um, who want to be involved in these discussions, and I think it is it is um, only for the benefit of the content of these discussions uh, to involve different stakeholders. Uh, also, especially when we talk about, for example, um, the role of the private sector, who plays a, a, a big part in actually um, helping the states to follow these norms or following these norms themselves or enforcing those norms. So uh, for me, this, this, is, um, this is very logical to involve the private sector um, into these discussions. Of course, there are many issues related uh, to that. I already mentioned the modal modalities, but also... 
um, how to involve different uh, stakeholders, which stakeholders to involve, in which format, um, how to kind of organize the messages uh, from the different stakeholders, how to make these messages uh, really apprehendable uh, to the states and how to organize this cooperation between the states and the non-state actors. So, so um, I'm looking forward to the, uh, to the next session of the Open Any Working Group happening in July and hopefully there will be uh, great opportunities for different non-state actors to express their views and to take part in these discussions. If anyone's interested, then um, non-state actors have been invited to publish their position papers. Um, these are available uh, on the website of the Open Ended Working Group, and and there you can really see how how many actors want to be involved and and in on the wide range of topics that they are interested in. Wow! Thank you, uh, Maria, for that. Um, this has been a very interesting discussion on cyber diplomacy. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, and we look forward to following your work in the future. So best of luck. And thank you um, so much, Helga, for joining uh, as well. And thank you, Maria, from my side as well. Thank you so much, Emma and Helga. I hope we can dis uh, continue these discussions in the near future in person. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. Thank you uh, all for listening to this episode of the Tech Diplomacy Podcast. Uh, see you next time. Thank you for listening to our Tech Diplomacy Podcast. Please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for more episodes.